Alrighty, folks. Good morning. Welcome in. We're going to get going here. All right, we got a lot to cover, so <laughs> I'm going to pray and we're going to get started. Let's pray. Lord, it's a, it's a privilege um, to meet together this morning, Lord, to study your word. Um, help us, Lord, to, to be small in our own view, Lord, and for you to be great and mighty. Lord, we, we want to give you glory, Lord, so I pray that we see um, Lord, the beauties and the excellencies of Scripture here, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would work and help us to do that now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So there are outlines back there if you want to grab one of those. I think some points will be behind me as well on the PowerPoint. Thank you, Christine, for doing that. So that'll be helpful. Um, hopefully that helps us follow along. Um, all right. So we are in the process of studying this amazing letter to the Hebrews. Um, and we have been thinking more recently about the way in which the author of Hebrew tells us uh, that Jesus, whom we are to consider, um, is both, a, both the apostle and high priest of our confession, right? We see that in chapters 3, and in chapter 4, we went over how um, the author has been teaching us a little bit how Jesus is God's apostle, and then he ends that section by telling us about the power of the Word of God. Um, now, we are going to turn this morning to Hebrews 5, uh, but I'm actually going to start with um, a section from four, the, the latter end of four. Um, so we're going to read through chapter five, verse 10 first, although I'm covering all the way to chapter five, verse 14. So we're just going to, we're going to kind of break this up. Um, so let's, let's read, I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter four, um, verse 14. And it reads, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men, in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by whom who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
So we're going to work with that section first, and then we're going to finish um, as we conclude through 11 to 14. So this is how this passage opens in chapter 4. Um, point A, we're going to see the writer begins with an encouragement, and he's going to, he's going to flow into chapter 5. So verse 14, in chapter 4, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, right? this is shortcut language for ministering here on earth, dying on the cross, being raised on the third day, and ascending to the right hand of the Father. Since he has passed through the heavens to the very throne of God, um, we today have a great high priest Jesus, the Son of God. And the emphasis is on the term great. This term um, is also used to describe our Lord um, as um, as a shepherd in the ministry, um, in chapters 10 and 13, I'm coming. Uh, he is great because unlike the priest in Israel's day, who had to first, um, upon entering the most holy place, atone for their own sins um, with the sprinkling of blood, and then, and then the people's sins, Christ, who is sinless, excels greatly the earthly high priest. Secondly, the Jewish high priest... Uh, entered the inner sanctuary of the temple only once a year and stood only momentarily, momentarily in the very presence of God. Jesus, by contrast, uh, because he is the Son of God, human and divine, um, is always in the heavens and always in the presence of God. So he's majestic in power and glory. And the, the writer now is going to go on for several chapters to explain uh, to us what this means. He has said... Uh, consider Jesus as the apostle of your calling at the beginning of chapter 3. And now he wants to say, consider the Lord Jesus as the high priest of your calling. A thought he actually starts all the way back in chapter 2. So the word therefore we read, so the word therefore that we read um, at the beginning of verse 14 in chapter 4 has loaded into it the immediate preceding context going all the way back into chapter 2 verse 17 where the subject of Christ's priesthood is first introduced. So the writer who briefly referred to the high priest whom we confessed in Hebrews 3.1 is now ready to explain the significance of Christ's priesthood. And this is a very interesting thing. He tells us what the application of his exposition is, and then he's going on to explain to us um, why it is that he's made this application or this encouragement. The writer of Hebrews actually does this a lot through the whole book. Um, he, inter he interposes his teaching um, with exhortation. And we're actually used to the other way, the other way around, typically, right? Um, a, you know, a sermon where exposition or explanation occurs, and then there's application that proceeds. So the Hebrews actually interposes his, his um, application or encouragements within um, a given exposition. So in, this is, so in this instant, the application and encouragement that he gives us um, is twofold. So since we have this great high priest, first of all, let us hold fast our confession. That's verse 14b, right? Let us hold fast our confession. And the second, in verse 16, then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And this is directly interconnected with faith, since we know from Romans 10.10, 10, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So we continue on to profess with heart and mouth joyfully, openly, so that our fellow man too may hear um, about Jesus, the Son of God. And we draw near because we know from verse 415 that Jesus was fully acquainted with human nature, since he is touched with the feeling of our weakness, as B.F. Westcott put it. 
Nothing in human experience is foreign to him, yet he remains God and is sinless. So why does he make these particular applications? Why would knowing Jesus as our high priest cause him to say, hold fast your confession? Why, having Jesus as our, why would having Jesus as a great high priest cause him to say, draw near to the throne of God? So first of all, he starts to answer these questions by his exposition of Jesus' priestly ministry. What does a priest need to be? And what does a priest need to do? Well, he thinks back to the high priests of old, um, of the old covenant period, and he suggests that there were three marks of a true high priest. The first was his function, the second was his character, and the third was his calling. Um, first of all, his function, and I, this is B, we're going to get into B now on the outline. We're, we're moving into chapter 5. And it reads, verse 1, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the purpose of a priest, then, is that we should have somebody who is able to bring it to pass that our sins will be forgiven. That, of course, was the reason for all of these sacrifices in the Old Testament, and especially the sacrifices that were associated with the high priest we read about in Leviticus 16. Um, that's what a priest is for. A priest serves so that um, it will be possible that my sins will be forgiven. And as verse 1 states, a priest is chosen specifically, so appointed, which means it's, it's based on a divine calling, and a priest is to offer sacrifices. The reason we need a priest is because we're not able to forgive our own sins. Um, the truth of the matter is you can't, can't forgive yourself. You can uh, say to yourself a thousand times, self, I forgive you. Look in the mirror every day and say, self, I forgive you. Um, and you're just not going to get anywhere because there is no word of forgiveness. I can speak to myself um, that has the authority to do so. You do not have the authority to forgive your own sins. It's actually a ludicrous idea to think you ever could. Um, so we need someone else. We need a great, a, a great someone else to forgive us of our sins. Um, so we don't look at ourselves. And, and we as a Western people, I think maybe if we don't, we don't look at ourselves in the mirror and say self-forgive ourselves, we do perhaps um, we think maybe our good works outweigh our, our bad works. And in that way, somehow we are in favor or merit um, with God. Um, and no matter how, how much you pile up the good things, no matter how much they seem to outweigh the bad things, um, and you probably don't say that out loud, you probably don't verbalize it this way, but, um, right, we all like to project. We project way better than we really are, um, if we're all being honest. Um, and we, cannot, we, we can't find any assurance of forgiveness in ourselves um, we need a very special high priest to bring us, to bring us the forgiveness of sins. So that's the function of the high priest. The high priest is the interme intermediary between God and his people. There's a second thing as well here, because you notice uh, Hebrews underscores the character of the high priest, and this is a very important qualification as well. Uh, ver chapter 5, verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, of course, um, one of the reasons he's beset with weakness is because he is weakened through his own sin. And so he needs to make a sacrifice first for his own sin before he makes a sacrifice for the people's sin. It's a very interesting statement, actually. For the priest, he needs to be, he needs to be conscious 
of what it means to be weak. Because if somebody is metallic and self-righteous and always seems to do the right thing, you're not going to go to that person when you've messed up. You need to go to that person. Um, you won't go to that person thinking, there's a heart of compassion, um, you know, enough to hold my confession or my need. Um, they won't understand. But, and this is why Hebrews has taught us that we have a brother of whom we can go to who does understand, right? We can go to him because his character is altogether good. His kindness brings, repentant, re, brings rep, repentance. We can go to him as a son. Um, we can go to him because his character is, is thoroughly trustworthy. Um, so the high priest has a specific function to deal with our sins. He also needs to have a specific character that draws us to go to him. Um, and then there's a third thing. He needs to have a divine a divine calling. And you notice in chapter, notice in verse 3, chapter 5, because of this, he is obligated to suffer sacrifice, offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And in addition, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. And why is that so important? Well, we don't want a square peg being forced into a round hole. Uh, we need to be sure that we have a priest whom God has called um, for a very simple reason, because if he's not called, um, he can't do anything to bring us to God. It's his task to make sacrifices for our sins, but if God has not called him, then his service lacks any power and any efficacy. So, it's his task to do this. This is what the author of Hebrews is, is thinking about because he wants to say this to us. He's saying, essentially, my, my dear friends, these things are supremely and uniquely true of our Lord Jesus. All three of these qualifications, supremely, supremely, greatly, and uniquely only true of our Lord Jesus. He is indeed overqualified to be an effective high priest, and he is absolutely morally perfect. Someone that we can trust through all the ages and whose faithfulness is ever, everlasting. He has not chosen this ministry just by himself, but has been appointed by God. So then as we move on, we are in point C, by the way. I don't know if I said that. <laughs> I know that's behind me. Um, and that's what that was supposed to be for. But we're in C, so he's, Jesus is fulfilling all this. I hope you're catching um, you're catching on to that. So we're in C. I think we're, we're in verse, um, we're going to move on to verse 6 now. Um, and these are two psalms he's going to refer to, the writer. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him. Um, and the kernel of these two quotations from the psalms is that his heavenly father um, has said to him, you are, my, you are my eternal son, and you are going to serve in this world so that what you do has an eternal impact. And you're to be, verse 6, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to get to Melchizedek. We're going to get to Melchizedek big time, I think, here coming up soon. I don't, I don't know who has it next. Um, we're really going to dive um, into, into, into what that means. But at the moment, all you really need to know is that he's a royal high priest who appears in Genesis 14, and he just appears from nowhere. And then he disappears into nowhere. 
and the author of Hebrews has this, has this sense about him. He comes from way in the past, and then he goes away into the future. And he says, Jesus is, Jesus is just like that. He comes from eternity. He goes to eternity. And he is therefore called by God to be an everlasting and eternal priest. And that's a great thing. High priest came and went. From the days of the Gospels until about this period, there had been a couple of dozen high priests. They didn't last long. They came, they come and go. But Jesus is a high priest forever. He does not plan to enter retirement. He's not going to leave. Um, he's been here among us from the very beginning. The eternal son, um, he'll be here as long as North Hills Christian Church is here, perhaps longer. We don't know. It's amazing. We have an eternal high priest who never changes and is never moved, and that's what makes him so great. So he fulfills these qualifications because he has been called by God to be an eternal high priest, but then, of course, he fulfills the qualification of the character. We see this again in verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And this is reminiscent, this is language. Um, he's referring to the Garden of Gethsemane, right, when our Lord cried profoundly. This verse reminds us of those, those aching moments when the Father pressed the cup of judgment into his hands. And some of the language that's used here um, reminds us of those, those moments we read in the Gospels. Um, and some may know what it means to have an event taking taking place in life that causes your mind to stagger and so impacts you physically that you wonder if you're going to die on the spot. And that's the kind of language that's used by our Lord in the garden. So, right, he calls out Father, if it's possible. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And remember how we're told in the Gospels the Father sent an angel, actually, to strengthen him. When the angel appears, does it mean everything's going to be fine? Do things start to get better? Well, no, not at all. Actually, the angel appears to strengthen him because it's clear in the gospel narrative what lies ahead. The road of redemption um, that, is going to, that is going to come. So these loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. and um, It's an important reminder, I think, for us that, to remember that he has... He has been down there. He has suffered. Um, and further down, whether it be temptation that we have failed to resist, he has resisted. Or whether it be sorrow we have experienced, there is no sorrow like unto his sorrow. No sorrow like unto his sorrow. If anything, he has gone down deeper. And remember, he cried, my God, my God, why am I forsaken? And so he's able to help you in your weakness. And unlike these old priests, because he has never sinned, he's actually strong enough to help you in your weakness. I mean, we can help and encourage one another, but at the end of the day, you're talking to someone that was a sinner and needed saving. When we talk to Christ, we are talking to the sinless Redeemer. And what goes on in your life goes on um, in your some way if you're talking to, to someone else. But with Jesus, he knows the deepest weakness and fragility, but he is strong and able to save us to the utmost. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 22, reads, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in the body in the tree, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he has the calling from God, and he certainly has the character for this ministry. And then going on into verse 9, Hebrews 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made a perfect or um, complete savior, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Christ is uniquely in all of history the eternal son of God in our flesh. He's uniquely qualified to make himself the sacrifice for our sins. And as Hebrews will go on to teach us so marvelously, we understand that the blood of bulls and goats isn't even an appropriate sacrifice for the sins of a man or a woman. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin as he makes one perfect, complete sacrifice for all the sins of all of his people. And so as the priest who makes the sacrifice, we're told here he is the one from whom all the blessings flow. Our great high priest is the source of eternal life. Jesus made perfect through suffering leads many sons to glory. And the language here, Christ learned obedience, um, and Christ being made perfect, um, it can perhaps be perplexing on its face, but remember Jesus did not have to learn anything. Um, he did not become less God when he came and dwelt in human flesh. He, did not, he also did not add anything to himself when he came and dwelt in human flesh. God does not change. He will always... Um, his will always was the same as God's, God the Father. And he was always sinless, being morally perfect. However, in his humanity, Jesus indeed had to show full obedience. One translation puts it this way, Son, though he was, he learned obedience in the school of suffering. And I think Romans 5.19 helps us too. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. And think of perfection here in verse 9 as completion. As the burdens in Jesus' life become more taxing, so his willingness to assume the task his father has given him increases. Perfection, therefore, must be seen as a completion of the task his father um, or that Jesus performs. This all because out of the love, the Father, this all because out of love, he sends the Son to save his people, right? Matthew 121, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this doesn't even, um, this doesn't even just go back to Matthew, right? This goes all the way back um, to Genesis, Genesis 3. In Genesis, we have the promise of the seed that doesn't come from the evil one, but comes from um, her offspring, not normal genealogy. And the, one, uh, that doesn't, and the one born unto us crushes the head of the enemy. Satan is defeated, and death and sin are quite literally put in the grave, buried. He proclaims it is finished. So, we are buried with him, and we will rise with him. Why? Because he has come 
Emmanuel, God with us. And because of texts like this in Hebrews, we're shown how profoundly better Christ is than any angel or any Moses or any Aaron. He is indeed our great high priest, kind and loving to his people. He will draw us into the very presence of God and assure us of the forgiveness of our sins and enable us here and now to find mercy and grace in our times of need. So we have a great high priest indeed. Psalm 50:23 reads, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And this is abundantly true abundantly true of our Lord. So, now the writer's going to continue, so we're going to move into this last section here um, in verses 11 to 14. And I'll start in verse 10 because it transitions us better. So let's read, we're going to read chapter 5, verse 10 through 14 uh, to the end. Being designated by God, so this is, he's talking about Christ, so being designated being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, about this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here, the writer of Hebrews is interrupting his explanation of Christ's priesthood in order to admonish his readers to be better students of the word. And any experienced teacher senses when his students um, are no, long, no longer absorbing the lesson material, and that's what he's doing here. The words of the author here are sharp, and pointed, something, something has gone drastically wrong in the learning process. By all standards, the reader should have graduated by now. Um, the author had planned to continue his teaching on the high priesthood of Jesus um, in the order of Melchizedek. However, this material um, has proved to be too deep theologically. The writer says it is difficult to explain, not because of the writer's lack of skill, but because of the reader's inability to comprehend. He says quite personally and emphatically, you are slow to learn. While the author does not specify the number of years it should take to understand the basics of the faith, he points out by the time of his writing, the readers should have been teachers. The time allotted to learn the teaching of the faith has been, has been ample. His readers should be able to teach others the teachings of Christ and God's word, but they are unable to do so, as it says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. And to, cl and to clarify, he's not talking about um, professionally qualified educators or, or eldership. He, he's not talking about that. He's, he's not considering them um, to, to be, they should be pastors or, or, or shepherding in that way. Um, rather, he's addressing the believer who has, heard, um, who has heard Bible stories and has been taught the doctrine of salvation, but nevertheless fail to put their ability to work in leading others to a knowledge of salvation in Christ. So he's drawing out the shame of a professing believer being given the opportunity to witness for Christ and teach the gospel, but declines because of inadequacy. 
So he goes on. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. By elementary truths of God's word, we don't go amiss um, if we say the basic teachings of the Bible. Um, of course, he, he's going to enumerate these elementary teachings of Christ in Hebrews 6, 1 through 2. So, so that's why it says on your outline, and, in, and into chapter 6, because he, he's really going to, he continues to, to um, exhort the readers. The author states that if his readers do not know even the elementary truths, someone has to teach them anew. You see, this is why writers of catechisms in the time of the Reformation incorporated three Christian documents into their teachings, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. These they considered the ABCs of the Christian faith. If a believer knew how to explain the basic doctrines of these three elements of Christian belief, he was expected then to testify for Christ and teach others. Verse 12b, you need milk not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Evil. And the rebuke here is actually comparable to Paul's remarks, if you remember, to the believers in Corinth, um, where it reads, Brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual but as worldly mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And milk, as we all know, is given to the very young. Um, and when they are older, they receive solid food. The babies in the faith cannot digest the solid food of God's word. They need spiritual milk instead. If they're and if there's anything a child dislikes, um, it's to be called the baby. And that's essentially what he's saying to them. Um, so the author of Hebrews calls the reader of his epistle an infant. To him, it is incredible that adults in the faith are still nurtured on spiritual milk, not solid food. He uses the word infant to put his readers to shame. He is not pulling punches and is not afraid to rebuke them or to admonish them and to direct them to a higher level of development. They must realize that growth demands solid food and they will never advance on a diet of milk. It reads, anyone who lives on milk is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. So as the writer keeps on rebuking his readers, he draws a logical inference from the illustration of babies who exist on milk alone. The author indicates that just as infants do not know the difference between right and wrong, so the re recipients of his letter are, un are unacquainted with the teaching about righteousness. A mere infant is unaccustomed to making decisions about correct conduct because he needs to be taught on a daily basis. Of course, we must understand that the reader is using a metaphor in order to make this point, it comes down to how they are thinking and how they are reading the scriptures. He isn't literally addressing the nursery, right? He's not calling out literal infants. Um, the contrast between infants and adults is shown in verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The writer calls um, adults mature people those who are constantly making decisions concerning ethical conduct. Their mental and spiritual training is perpetually uh, put to use when they distinguish good and evil. 
Adults are re repeatedly confronted with moral decisions that need to be made. Adults gain um, experiential knowledge that is still absent in children. So as, as children mature, they too will acquire the moral sense of discriminating between good and evil. And this is what he means um, by, by righteousness, by the way. Um, it doesn't have to do with, he's not talking about their salvation or being saved. Uh, it's not like the, 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 the quote-unquote children he is addressing in this congregation are, not, are without Christ's righteousness. Um, the author uses the metaphor of milk for infants and solid food for adults to spur his readers to spiritual and intellectual activity. He wants them to understand the biblical implications of Jesus' high priesthood. And so here's the thing we should guard against. Um, and it's being critical of the original recipients of the epistle and not looking at ourselves when we read this passage. For we ourselves can show the same characteristics. We who have heard the gospel proclaimed for numerous years, many of us perhaps even since childhood or early adolescence, um, often do not demonstrate spiritual discernment. Although we have God's revelation in the Old and New Testaments, um, we may remain slow learners. The ABCs of the Christian faith are readily learned by any sincere believer who in turn should be capable of imparting this elementary knowledge to people unacquainted with the gospel. And we should think about it really as, as a corporate privilege of the church to formulate the teachings of, of Christian faith, the doctrines of God, man, Christ, salvation, um, the church, and the end of the age all belong to the entire church, not merely to a few gifted theologians or just the elders or just the teachers or just the preachers, right? We like to make these categories as if they should know more and we kind of can get by with knowing less. Um, we all need to know, know this stuff and should enjoy it. The church, as a body of believers, is the responsible agent in formulating, adopting, teaching, and defending these doctrines of the faith. We do all of this together. So knowing the word is not just for the preacher, but the individual Christian is always exhorted to progress beyond the level of, quote, the elementary truths of God's word. So, that's our content for today. He, he really does, it does feel like we kind of did two different things, which he, that's, that's how the writer wrote it. So um, we'll get more into chapter six, the exhortation, it continues. Um, but for now on your outline, um, there are some questions for contemplation. If we want to do that, we can contemplate together. Um, so I can start with the first question there, or I don't know if you've read through, has, has anyone read through those questions? Any of the questions stood out? Go ahead. Man, where's the sound guy? <laughs> We can, there Sorry. we go. Okay, we're back. Um, just actually the, the first two questions talking about what, what does this tell you about what we should believe in God and what does it reveal about some aspect of the gospel? I mean, I think you tied in really well the fact that the, the Old and New Testament teach the same thing. And we've got to remember that this is being taught 
to the Hebrews. And part of why there's such a heavy, strong admonition here is because, wait a minute, you, you, you folks, you Hebrews have grown up knowing this truth. You have been completely inculcated with, inculcated with this truth. So you should be leading the charge now that it's been revealed to us in Christ. You should be the ones going out and teaching. But instead, we're still having to go over the basics because you're not getting that, that first. So I, I think you, you tied that in really well in your first two questions. Sort of reveal that a little bit too, how the gospel is throughout Old and New Testament. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if this correlates with any of your questions in particular, but um, you know Hebrews five two is one that it, it always stands out to me as I look at it as what it is that I've received, and then what it is that I am called to give to other people, and so I see that Christ deals gently with me when I'm ignorant, when I'm wayward. Because he, since he himself is beset with weakness, so the high priest, you know, is the physical, the, the, the human high priest knows what it's like to be weak, knows what it's like to be wayward, knows what it's like to be ignorant. Um, we know that Christ knows what it's like for us to be like that because we're like that, and that's how he, but yet he's, he deals gently with us. And then, so that in turn goes, okay, well then, how should I deal with others, my children, when they're ignorant, when they're wayward, when they're with other people? Um, deal with them gently in the way that Christ deals with me. And I think that's just incredibly, you know, helpful to see what we receive and how then he calls us to serve and minister to others. Should I read through any of these questions? Okay, Dan wants me to, so I submit. Um, all right, so what does this passage tell me about what we should, or yeah, what we should believe about God? What does this passage tell me about what we should believe about God? So on the note of encouragement, um, that our high priest is not one who will fade into the sunset. Our high priest is eternal, and God's love for us thus and as such is eternal. And so we should be encouraged ourselves and then also encourage others to know that his love is eternal and our forgiveness is eternal through his son. Amen. 
testing. Just to kind of go with what he, he's already said, our intercessor, he is our ultimate intercessor between us and God. Um, and as he told Peter, I pray for you that your faith faileth not. He holds our faith in his hands, and we rest in that. It's secure. Anything else this shows us about God? Kind, uh, Nick kind of hit on it, right? God's kind. Mike? Yeah. Kind of touched on he's eternal. God's our intercessor. Anything else we see? How about this question? What does this passage, passage reveal about some aspect of the gospel? Well, certainly that uh, sacrifice is needed. Yeah. Also that there, an intercessor is needed, somebody that goes to God on behalf of us and pleads our case to God. There's always going to be accusation by the evil one, He's, that's how he operates, and that's how he keeps people in that milk state, is they don't think that they, um, let's say, they're not worthy, but um, because of their lack of knowledge, they shrink instead of going toward, and then the accusations come, and they believe the accusations, yet Jesus goes to the Father on behalf of those people that Nick was talking about, how he is gentle and kind um, and draws people out of that infantile state into a state of maturity in, in the gospel and theology and doctrine. Um, I, I would just mention the fact that him being the high priest uh, now makes gives us access, you know, that people didn't have before he came. And so we, we have access to him at any time, at any moment, you know, so thankful for that. Any last thoughts? If not, I can closes in prayer and we'll be done. Nothing burning? All right, I'll pray. Lord, you are indeed most, most gracious and kind to us um, to provide us with um, a great high priest, Lord, who on behalf of us takes on sin in the cross, Lord, and is indeed buried and resurrected, Lord. We have life because of what our glorious Redeemer has done. Lord, that's why we're here. Um, Lord, cause our hearts to, to worship you now, uh, to exalt you highly, 
Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.